Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We have an amazing returning guest with us. Who have we got, Alex? We have James Scott back with us today. Woo! This is brilliant. James has been on before. He's done uh, Pearl Harbor with us. No, not Pearl Harbor. That was Rich Frank. James has done... Um, Doolittle. The Doolittle Raid, Raid yeah, post-Pearl Harbor with us. And he also did um, his magnificent book, Rampage, um, talking about the Philippines in World War II, which was just heartbreaking as well. Uh, heartbreaking for James today is the knowledge from the COVID app that he is number 278 million in line, did you say, to get vaccinated? Sadly, yes. Why would you tell people that? Why would you even release that information if it's that depressing? I know. Well, you know, and we're being penalized because I'm of that middle-aged, you know, sort of generation where we, uh, they know we're responsible. And so they pushed us all to the back of the line. (laughs) (laughs) And you're in South Carolina as well, which is like, no, you said South Dakota's COVID central now, right? Yeah, like the whole Midwest is just sort of in in parts of like the uh, Southwest as well, just sort of, you know, being eaten alive by it. Oh, it's miserable, isn't it? Um, well, I hope you can at least have a bit of a decent family Christmas um, with your nearest and dearest. Uh, and should we talk about war, which is less depressing than COVID? Exactly. Because we know that it ends in this case. <laughs> true, true. Oh, so we're going to talk about a book that you wrote a while back called Attack on the USS Liberty, aren't we? We are, Yes. This is going to be really good. So um, set the scene for our listeners then, uh, because we're going back to 1967. So what is the situation in the Middle East in the spring of 67? Yeah. And so for folks, you know, if uh, this is sort of outside of my normal bailiwick, I normally do Mm. World War II, but, you know, I was really this, the Attack on Liberty was my first book. And and, uh, what drew me to that story, just on the front end of it for folks who who aren't familiar with it, is that I have a personal connection to the story and that my father was the... uh, was one of the officers on board the Liberty. He was the damage control officer um, on that ship, and and so I I grew up kind of hearing this story and knowing about it, and um, uh, and so that's really kind of sort of my way into this story. But what the USS Liberty was was in essence it was a spy ship. Uh, during the 1960s, the U.S. Navy and the National Security Agency partnered up to create a fleet of mobile listening platforms. These were uh, ships that we could dispatch in a short amount of time to hotspots around the world that uh, where we could eavesdrop. And these, these were World War II cargo ships. They were designed to look non-threatening, innocuous. innocuous. You know, so they were basically just um, old freighters, if you will, uh, that we packed with uh, antennas and also linguists. 
And so they could be sent. They went with, um, they didn't operate as part of a fleet. That was another part of sort of keeping them safe was, you know, they were just lumbering cargo ships. Uh, but we would send them off, um, you know, to the Middle East, to Africa. Uh, we had sent them down to Cuba during that time in the lead up to the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, North Korea was another one that, um, uh, in fact, the USS Pueblo, very famous ship, was actually captured by the North Koreans and its crew, uh, held prisoners there for a uh, better part of a year. Um, so these were uh, these were ships that really were 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 designed to sort of plug in the gaps in our intelligence. And that was what the USS Liberty was. And its typical operating area was the coast of West Africa. So it frequently carried a lot of French linguists and it sort of patrolled up and down the West Coast. And they were looking for signs of Soviet penetration into those countries. And so uh, it was honestly, you know, you interview a lot of the guys on board and it was a pretty, uh, boring job. I mean, they just kind of, they would sort of cruise up and down in international waters. They would, you know, listen in for radio signals and communications. And then, you know, they fished, they, uh, they did ports of call. I mean, it was a pretty, uh, a pretty easy duty during that time. Uh, until of course, May, 1967. And that's when everything changes for the Liberty. Because at that time, war clouds start brewing in the Middle East between Israel and its Arab neighbors. And so the um, Liberty gets emergency orders uh, in late May to leave West Africa, go to Rota, Spain, uh, to swap out its linguists, uh, for its French linguists, and bring in Arabic language linguists, and then report to the Middle East uh, to, to eavesdrop on the growing tensions there. And so that's kind of of course the framework for sort of how, you know, how we end up where we did in 1967. So tell us what is the six day war and how does it come into this whole narrative? Yeah. So the six day war of course was just as its name implies, it was a six day conflict between um, Israel, Egypt, uh, Jordan, and uh, Syria. And it was, um, a war actually that Israel launched it was a preemptive strike that they launched uh, initially against Egypt and then it expanded out. And then over the course of six days, they defeated all of their uh, Arab neighbors and, uh, and as a result gained, uh, gained a good bit of territory in, in the process. And so when the Liberty got its orders to dispatch those, those war clouds were brewing at that time. So the conflict had not actually yet started. The conflict didn't start until uh, early June, but the, the tensions were there on the global stage and enough that the national security agency decided that they wanted to have a front row seat for anything that might happen. And that's why, and the Liberty of course was the closest ship uh, there that could um, be dispatched. Cause I mean, this was a program, the U S didn't have a ton of these ships. It wasn't like we had a thousand of them. I mean, we really had, you know, I think, six or eight or 10 of these ships at, at, uh, available. And, and so, and of course the world is a very big place. So um, that's why the Liberty was picked there from West Africa to, uh, to make that transit across the Mediterranean. And what does she do? So she goes up to the Middle East and, and presumably starts listening. Yeah. So basically how these ships operate, and I'll tell you, it's fascinating. We actually stole this idea from the Russians. And uh, the Russians were the, really the pioneers of these sort of mobile listening platforms. And they used to send them over here to the United States. And they would sit in international waters. That's the key. You know, a ship's maritime, I mean, a nation's maritime boundaries normally, you know, 
just a few miles, maybe up to about a dozen miles or so. And of course, radio signals and communications can be picked up from outside that range. And so they would literally just park these things, you know, off the coast of the United States. And they, they particularly liked Cape Canaveral, which is where our space operations uh, uh, were. And, and so they would, you know, we, they would have them there. But they also operated, for instance, right off of Charleston, where I'm, I'm located, because we have, uh, at that time, had a huge Navy base here, uh, with sub, um, submarine base as well. And so those, those ships operate here. So, so we stole that idea from the Russians. And so what they do is, yeah, they, they, these ships would park in international waters and they would, um, they could listen in on, you know, Morse code on radio signals and things like that. They could record those things. They had uh, linguists on board who would, you know, would be sort of scanning different radio frequencies and listening. And if they found something they thought was worthwhile, they would hit the record button. Uh, typically, you know, this wasn't like today when you could just dump it all in a big um, Dropbox folder and, and ship it back to the NSA. Typically, they had all this taped material and things like that. They would put it, they would, you know, pull into a uh, port of call, put them in diplomatic pouches, give them to the embassy there, and these things could be um, flown back to the United States um, to be able to be, you know, further analyzed there. So that's typically how they operated. Um, they were cargo ships, so they had this big, huge hold down below, which had been converted into uh, uh, different departments, and that's where these uh, radio operators and, uh, and linguists worked. And then so you had sort of two, two groups of people on board any one of these ships. You had what they called the spooks, and those were the folks who worked for. Uh, it was called the Naval Security Group, but they were the uh, they were the ones that were sort of the intelligence operatives, if you will. And then you had, of course, the ship's company, and they were the drivers, the navigators, and the crew that operated the ship. And so, uh, and so, if on, on these ships, there was typically a uh, sort of a a class system, if you will. You know, you had the the spooks who kind of and a lot of the guys that were in the ship's company would say you know they kind of felt like the the spooks looked down on them if you will and then uh and, and of course they they were small you know the liberty had 294 crew members they only had about 16 officers these were all young men i mean most of these officers were still in their 20s uh, my dad actually was uh was 23 and his his 24th birthday actually was june 8th of that year uh, and so they, um, that was kind of how they operated. So they just would sort of patrol a pattern, uh, soak up that information, listen in on it, analyze it, record it, and then eventually send it back. That's what the Liberty was doing. The Liberty had gone to, uh, Rota, Spain, swapped out its French linguists, brought in, um, what were called, uh, Arabic linguists. And, and they also had what they called special Arabic linguists. And because the, you know, U.S.-Israeli relations are always a very sensitive hotspot, and we never wanted to be perceived as directly spying on the Israelis. And so we called our Hebrew language um, uh, linguists, we called them special Arabic linguists, and it meant that they had training in Hebrew so they could monitor uh, or, or at least determine <clears throat> who was speaking, uh, whether it was Arabs or the Israelis. From there, the uh, Rhoda, they crossed the Mediterranean, and they arrived early on June 8th, 1967. At that point, the Six-Day War had already been going on for several days, and the um, <clears throat> Liberty took up a station in international waters uh, off of the Gaza Strip. And they basically patrolled like a big, think about it like a big racetrack loop, if you will, and they just lumbered along at a few knots, listened to communications, things like that. The ship's crew, at that point, once they sort of take up their station like that, 
you know, the ship's crew, some of these guys were out sunbathing, you know, they were doing drills and things like that. So, um, and of course, you know, here they are in international waters and just, you know, a little more than 12, 14 miles away. Of course, a war is taking place on shore. Can you talk us through the attack? I mean, how did it happen and why? Yeah, so, you know, the Liberty had actually, like I said, it just arrived, you know, kind of in the middle of the night, early in the morning on June 8th. And literally from pretty much dawn onward, the Liberty was being overflown by Israeli aircraft. Uh, I think there were eight overflights by Israeli reconnaissance craft over the Liberty that morning. Some of these things flew so low that the guys on deck could actually uh, see the pilots wave, things like that. So for the crew, of course, they actually felt very comfortable because they knew the Israelis knew they were there. They were keeping an eye on them. They were in international waters. Of course, Israel was a uh, friend of the United States. So we weren't expecting any kind of, uh, you know, for them to be upset if any, you know, so, uh, and, and it's important to remember with the Liberty is a largely, it's essentially an unarmed ship. You know, it's a cargo ship. It operates by itself, so there's no aircraft carriers. The Sixth Fleet, which is stationed in the Mediterranean, is hundreds of miles away. Uh, it operates by itself. It's a cargo ship. It has four 50 caliber machine guns. The sole purpose of those guns is uh, to repel borders, essentially pirate-type situations that you might find. Um, and so, so you know, they, uh, and, but what it – it operated really under a, a sense of security of, of the American flag, which it had flying from its mast. It had its big hull numbers identifying it as a U.S. ship. Uh, you know, these are man-sized uh, letters on the front of the bow. It had its name freshly stenciled on the stern. So, I mean, it really, that's its defense, is that this is an American ship in international waters. Mm. Um, and so that day... They're out there cruising, you know, and they're, like I said, they're going just a few knots. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they're off, you know, in international waters under the American flag being overflown. So that mo- that morning, it's bright and sunny out. It's, you know, it's a June, beautiful June day, uh, great visibility. You know, the crew goes through the morning, they have lunch, they go through a drill early in the afternoon. Uh, and then they're up on the bridge, you know, the officers are scanning and they can see at this point and they pick up on radar inbound fast moving planes. And so the skipper goes out onto the wing of the bridge, takes up his binoculars and he can see incoming fighter jets and they drop down low out of the sky and they're clearly coming in and sort of an attack, um, uh, what, what appears to be an attack formation. And at that point he, he yells into there to the crew to prepare for potential attack at that point. And literally within seconds, the first rockets start hitting the Liberty. Um, and it's an incredibly violent attack. You know, these are fighter planes coming in. They make multiple passes on the Liberty, um, hitting it with rockets and cannons. Uh, they, they in fact drop napalm on the deck of the Liberty, you know, which of course napalm burns it, you know, several thousand degrees. So you can imagine what that does to the, uh, you know, uh, to the top of the ship and whatnot, just sort of burns it black, if you will. And so, um, so, you know, literally within seconds, this ship goes from men sunbathing and lumbering and whatnot to, you know, coming under fire from 
from fighter jets. And these are sophisticated fighter jets at this point, you know, rockets, cannons, napalm. And, uh, uh, and so that, that's sort of the beginning of the attack. Um, call for general quarters, you know, the men start running through the ship to their, um, to their battle stations, you know, the, uh, the, the, the corpsmen, of course, it's important to remember there are only 294 men on board this ship. Mm-hmm. There's only one doctor on board the ship. He's aided by two Navy corpsmen. Ship's doctor is not even 30 years old, never even finished his surgical residency. He has two assistants to help him. And suddenly, you know, the, their ship is coming under this huge attack. Um, these cannons are literally able to blow just huge holes in the side of, uh, of the Liberty. In fact, you know, they investigators would later count 821 rocket and cannon uh, holes in the Liberty. And so really, even if you were inside the superstructure or below deck, if you will, you really, it was nowhere safe. Um, and that's what one of the officers told me. He said, you know, if it was your day to get hit, you were going to get hit. Um, that was true later on when the Israeli Navy joined the fight and began firing um, armor piercing 50 caliber machine gun rounds. And so one of the officers, for example, was down in the mess deck, was crouching low, uh, hiding behind sort of a, a rack, if you will, sort of like a food service rack, you know, where they had coffee mugs and everything. And one mm. of the coffee mugs right by him shattered from a round. They later dug a 50 caliber machine gun round that had out, out of a navigation book. It had actually gone through um, one of the bulkheads into the bridge, into a row of books before it finally came to rest. It's Uh, just absolute overkill. Yeah. Oh, it totally was. I mean, and the attack lasted a total of about 67 minutes. Okay. And it starts right around two in the afternoon. Uh, Again, clear, sunny day begins with fighters that come over. I think they make a total of six or eight passes, you know, unloading on the ship time. And again, it's got Liberty's got a, Big flag, you know, American flag. It gets shot down. The skipper then orders the largest flag they have at that time on board the ship to be hoisted back up. So they want to make sure that at all times it's identifiable as an American ship. Um, the fighter pilots, when they initially came in, they targeted the four guns. And so the men who had run to their battle stations at the 50 caliber machine guns were some of the first killed. Um, there are photographs of the attack afterwards that show, you know, just the blood splattered everywhere on the, on the deck. It's literally running down the bulkheads. And then they targeted the bridge to try to knock out, you know, of course the officers. And, and, uh, and so um, they were highly successful. The skipper was actually wounded during the attack. Um, the helmsman was killed. Um, literally pretty much everybody on the bridge was either dead or wounded uh, pretty quickly into the attack. About half hour into the attack, uh, the Israeli Navy joins the fight, sending in several torpedo boats. Um, these torpedo boats, of course, they're fast-moving, small uh, vessels. They come in, they uh, unleash five torpedoes at the Liberty. Uh, four of them miss, uh, but the fifth hits hits the starboard side of the ship. And I'll, I'll tell you when the, uh, the skipper could see what was going on, and you know, he told the men at that point, you know, stand by for torpedo attack starboard side. And, you know, in interviewing these survivors, I mean, it's just this, this terrifying realization for these men that here they are in international waters on a ship without any support. You know, there's no 
there's no destroyers nearby. There's no cruisers. There's no aircraft carriers. They are totally on their own. And now they're having to brace for a torpedo attack. And so what these men do is in following their training, you know, they, they, they button up their shirts so that they, um, you know, to protect all their exposed skin and you roll down your sleeves, you button them, you tuck your pants into your, tops of your socks. I mean, cause what they're trying to prevent is flash burns. Yeah. And then they all lay down on the floor, uh, of the, of the research spaces of this, of the, of the intelligence spaces. And of course these are all below deck and, and then they wait. And one of the guys I, I in, interviewed said that, you know, he, he wore glasses and he took his glasses off and he tucked them inside the front pocket of his shirt because he didn't want to see what was about to happen. And so then at that point, you know, here these guys are, they're just waiting to get hit. You know, and of course the ship's trying to take evasive maneuvers, but you know, moving a ship that's as big as the Liberty is, you know, this big lumbering cargo ship when you're up against these swift moving small torpedo boats is really an impossibility. So the first four torpedoes, of course, miss, but the fifth hits the side and it rips this huge hole in the side of the, uh, of the ship. And those men inside those research spaces said, with like the snap of a thumb, it was like the space just filled right up with water. And, uh, and yeah, so they, you know, and it, and it goes dark. And so, you know, here the guys are, all these men trapped down below, the water's rising, it's pitch black. You know, there's sparks and things like that periodically. There's oil in that water because it's, you know, of course the fuel tanks have ruptured. Uh, you imagine the walls have been blown down. There's furniture floating in there. Uh, there are people, there are wires, uh, there's pieces of cut metal, things like that. And these guys are trying to figure out how to get out of this space. And, uh, and of course, you know, uh, and of course the ship at that point starts to roll you know, because it's filling up with water. And so it starts to mm-hmm. lift more and more. And so, um, you know, my dad actually, and this is, again, my father was the damage control officer. And June, <laughs> at my, this point, his job has just gone out, out of all proportion, hasn't it? It's tremendous. You know, yeah. and he's, uh, he, uh, he's, he's turned 24 years old that morning. He's a uh, ensign in the, in the, uh, in the United States Navy is the lowest officer rank <laughs> available. He's on his second only cruise ever on board a ship. Mm. Okay. Only made one, he'd only been at sea once before the previous cruise and then this. And then suddenly here he is and uh, his ship has been hit by 820 rockets and cannons and now a torpedo that stripped a 34-foot hole inside of the ship. Uh, and so, you know, they're locking down the watertight compartments. You know, ships are designed so that you can sort of seal off damage and things like that. Mm-hmm. So my dad rushes down to the, um, to the, the sort of the, the deck where the, just above where the flooding is taking place. And there's a, you know, they've got a, a, um, hatch opened up there and they can see the water rising and the men are coming up out of the hatch. You know, these guys are soaking wet. They've got oil on them, things like that. And, um, and, you know, the ship, they, they run the risk that if they don't seal that hatch, they'll flood out the ship and the whole thing will go down. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's this incredible situation of, 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 you know, 
how do you save the few and risk the lives of everyone? And so that was kind of the, the decision that rested on my dad's shoulders as he's looking down into this water. And of course and it's rising, it's rising. He's got one of his, his assistants next to him. And he, he tells me, he says, you know, give me your, give me your water. Uh, your what they have waterproof flashlights. So like, give me your flashlight. And he said, give me your belt. And so he, this sailor pulls off his belt and dad ties it around this flashlight. He drops, turns the light on and he drops it down into this water. And then he takes like a, a, a hammer and he starts banging on the opening of it so that anybody down below can see, can hear the banging and direct, mm. see the light to see the way out. And you know, these men are, they're, they're literally crawling along the ceiling of the, uh, the overhead as they call it in the Navy of this compartment, pulling themselves along the wires and everything to try and get out. And eventually my dad, the last guy comes out and he tells my dad, he's like, there's nobody else alive down there. Uh, you can seal it up. And so they, they do at that point, they seal it up. Um, the attack is not over. The torpedo boats having scored this huge hit in the side of the ship, then pull in even closer and open, open fire with their 50 caliber machine guns. And, um, and at that point, the skipper says to his men, he had to prepare to abandon ship. And, you know, um, and so men start tossing lifeboats and these inflatable rafts overboard and the, uh, the torpedo boats come along and they shoot up the life rafts and they shoot up the sides of the ship and all. And so at that point, really, there's no, there's no effort for the, There's no ability for them to be able to, to abandon ship. Um, and so about 67 minutes after the attack in after the attack begins, the, the torpedo boats stop the attack. And that's, that's the end of it. Um, 34 men were killed. Um, another hundred and more than 170 injured. So that out of a crew total of 294, literally two out of every three men were either killed or injured in the span of that, of that time period. Um, insanity yeah only nine died during the air attack yeah the majority of those deaths 25 of those deaths were the direct result of that torpedo flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What do they do in the immediate aftermath? They've got like a half-dead ship and chaos. Yeah, so anyway, they, they were trying throughout the attack to alert the 
United States Sixth Fleet, which was about 500 miles away over toward uh, Crete at that point. They were sending out radio messages, you know, as, you know, under attack, under attack, need help. Their systems were being jammed by the Israelis. And so they were unable to get a message out, but they were finally able to get a message out. Uh, and they, at that point, the Sixth Fleet responds, begins launching fighter aircraft and whatnot. But of course, you know, these planes are hundreds of miles away. Uh, so it's going to take, you know, hours for them to get there. By the time you know, they have to rearm, they have to arm the ships, load them, I mean, arm the planes, get them out. Uh, so it, it, and eventually at that point, Israel acknowledges that they attacked the ship. And so, um, and so they order for these fighter planes is rescinded for them, you know, for them to come in and defend the Liberty and drive off any attackers. And so the planes are recalled and the Liberty is left out there. Okay. And so it has, um, you know, of course, all these injured, all this damage. Um, and it's going to take 17 hours before the Sixth Fleet can cover that distance to get to them. So from that afternoon of the attack until the next morning, these men are on their own. You know, they're, and they've got, like I said earlier, they've got one doctor and two corpsmen, and they've got all these dead and injured. And, uh, and it's truly, you know, a, and, and, and a truly just a, I mean, one of the guys told me, he said he'd he'd grown up on a farm in rural area and said he, you know, he knew what a slaughterhouse looked like, you know, growing up. And that's what this was. And so with that size, that many dead and wounded, they had to convert the mess deck, the mess hall, into a makeshift hospital. And they just brought everybody in and they put them up on top of the tables. They brought mattresses in. They put them on the, on the floors, on, they were literally having to um, do transfusions arm to arm. Um, you know, the doctor was like teaching, you know, people how to stitch up smaller wounds. I mean, these, uh, you know, and the wounds sort of range from, you know, minor to, to hellacious wounds, you know, to um, compound fractures to, um, you know, uh, shrapnel, I mean, massive shrapnel injuries. The skipper was badly wounded. He had a tourniquet on his leg up on the, uh, on the um, bridge of the ship. He refused to leave the, the bridge. Um, of course, all the Liberty's systems were really knocked out. You know, they were able to get power again and whatnot, but they've lost their, their navigation abilities. So the skipper at that point literally lays down on his back, looks up at the stars and begins to navigate by the stars. I mean, here you have one of America's at the time most sophisticated spy ships having to fall back on centuries old sailing technology of looking at the stars for navigation um, so that they can, you know, head away from the coast and prepare to rendezvous the next day with the, uh, with the Navy. So why did this happen and were there any investigations into the attack? Yeah. So the Israelis say it was all a case of mistaken identity that they, um, that they thought this was an Egyptian ship and, and they had a lot of, they, they, over the years, they sort of had a lot of different explanations that it was, you know, mistaken identity. They thought it was a different ship and, and, and whatnot, or that they, they, uh, and, it, but it, it was a, a view that nobody on the crew believed, uh, my father included, and that nobody in the U S intelligence establishment really believed either. And, and the reasons being, of course, that this was a, you know, a lone cargo ship. It, it was not 
configured to look like a warship or a combatant. It's a cargo ship. This does not look like a cruiser or a carrier or anything like that. It had virtually no guns. So it had no, uh, it had, um, it was covered in antennas, which they wanted, one admiral in fact said it looks like a porcupine. And so everybody knew what these ships were. Mm. And it's important to remember that people knew what these ships were. I mean, they had 38 antennas. I mean, it, it bristled like a porcupine as one of the admirals said. So, um, it also had a huge American flag. It had its names written on the, on the bat, on the stern and on the, uh, its hull numbers during the height of the attack, the officers on board the Liberty were able to clearly identify the hull markings on the very small, swift moving Israeli torpedo boats that Israel claimed its pilots and its seamen over the course of multiple attacks of 67 minutes failed to note the American flag, the huge hull numbers or the Liberty's name on the stern. It just really the American intelligence community simply just didn't buy that. Um, and so, yes, there were some investigations, but it was a really, you know, but it was a very delicate situation uh, because of things that were going on in the United States at that time. And um, with the Vietnam War and with Lyndon Johnson and with U.S.-Israeli relations. And, of course, Johnson was, uh, at that time, deeply mired in the Vietnam War. It's the summer of 1967. There were riots across cities in America at that time. Um, 10,000 Americans would die in the jungles of Vietnam that year. Uh, in May, we were averaging over 30 deaths a day in Vietnam. So in Johnson's eyes, the Liberty was just one more day's set of body counts, you know, 34 Americans on the Liberty, 34 in Southeast Asia. I mean, these were numbers that Johnson was conditioned to. Uh, he was also very much worried about um, relations with, inside the American Jewish community, uh, it, which had, you know, Israel had come off this stunning, and they were in the stunning victory with the uh, over its Arab neighbors. U.S. Johnson had worked to grow U.S.-Israeli relations. He, um, at the forefront of the anti-Vietnam movement, were a lot of uh, American Jewish groups. And he was desperate to hold together support for his Vietnam policy going into the fall, which was, of course, an election year. Uh, 1968 would be an election year, and he didn't know if he was going to run yet or not. But he didn't want to create any more domestic political tension than he already had. And picking a fight with Israel would only alienate an important domestic uh, voting group that he was really interested in holding on to. And so that's sort of the the domestic political considerations that all of this gets factored into. And of course it, it really shows when, as Johnson is meeting the, during the day of the attack inside the situation room, they're so afraid of offending, you know, Israel's supporters in the United States that there's actually a memo I found in my research and written by the deputy director of the national security agency in which inside the situation room, there was talk about scuttling the Liberty at sea to prevent photographers from capturing all that damage and inflaming tensions against Israel. And so that shows you how very quickly this went from being an attack on an American ship to becoming a domestic political crisis for the Johnson administration. 
And so that's what the liberty is. It's, it's really, it's, it's this unfortunate intersection between domestic politics and the military. And that's how everything played out afterwards. So we had to have an investigation. The Navy was going to host an investigation into the attack on the Liberty, but they were, they did not allow any of the Naval investigators to go to Israel and interview any of the attacking pilots or torpedo boat captains. Um, they took only a little bit of testimony from the, uh, some of the officers. I think the entire transcript for the investigation was, 150 pages. I mean, my, my wife's a lawyer and she's had depositions produce transcripts many times that length. And yet an entire court of inquiry into the Liberty was just, you know, a few hundred pages long. So there was a real effort to downplay this, to sort of um, make it go away, if you will. In fact, I interviewed uh, Nicholas Katzenbach who had been, um, Attorney General of the United States, and at that time was second in command of the State Department. And he said that LBJ uh, told him that if he went and went to the Israelis and told them that, hey, if you pay the families of those killed on that ship, and if you pay the, the troops that were injured, uh, sailors that were wounded, and you make whole with them, and if you pay us for the ship, which is ultimately had to be scrapped. Mm. We'll let this whole thing go. No more questions asked. And so that was the deal that the U S struck. And, um, and so, uh, and Katzenbach told me, he said, you know, that there was, <clears throat> they were all convinced that the Israelis had knowingly targeted an American ship, you know, but that they felt that it was a decision made at the, at the military level inside Israel and not at the political level. And Israel sort of had two factions at that time. They had, you know, they had their sort of political and then they also had a very strong military culture as well. And, and they felt that it didn't, it wasn't a political decision made by their prime minister and that side and that it was a tactical decision made by the military and that it did not warrant a break in relations. And that if these criteria were met, paying the, and, you know, the families of those killed, paying the uh, injured and paying for the ship, they'd be willing to let it go. And that's essentially what happened. And so... Um, As someone whose dad was on it, does that really offend you? Yeah, you know, it's... Um, you know, I've, I've been a long been a student of history and politics and things like that. And so I certainly... You know, I, I, I see these, these sort of uh, uh, Faustian bargains made throughout history, if you will. And, and that's kind of what this was. Um, you know, it did. It it it, it left a lot of bitterness, um, a, a lot with the men with the men and the crew. I mean, you know, and these men lived with some of them lived with life altering wounds and injuries for the rest of their lives. Uh, many more dealt with um, post traumatic stress, alcoholism. I mean, it, it. I mean, the trauma of what they went through. I mean, it was like a that. That mess deck, those blood-soaked mattresses, and those men laying there, and the men that died. I mean, it. it and then, and then the Navy made those men, same men, go down into those spaces, and days later, and recover the pieces of their friends. Just I mean, sorry doesn't seem to cover it, does it? Yeah, it doesn't. And so, yes, it absolutely left a lot of of um, of. Uh, 
bitterness and, and deservedly so, you know, um, my dad, it, it, it wasn't as affected. In fact, one of the officers told me when I was doing research, he said, you know, your dad's the most well-adjusted man who walked off that ship. And I, I didn't appreciate that as a young man. And I didn't appreciate that even when I was working on this book as much, because, you know, when I was growing up, he was just dad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had a, you know, over the wet bar in the house, he had his, uh, my father was awarded the silver star for his efforts to prevent the liberty from singing, which is a um, third highest award from military heroism in the U S and he, uh, and it was just there on the wall, you know, and, and, you know, and dad went to swim meets and little league games and yeah, he had a career and, you know, we went on family trips and it wasn't something that he dwelled on. I mean, if I asked him about it, he would talk about it, but it wasn't like something that was always there. It didn't come up. There must be so many men of that generation because of Vietnam that had those kind of experiences that it, it wasn't exceptional to them, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, and for, of course for my father, this was just one part of it. I mean, he went to Vietnam right after this and he got really banged up in the Vietnam war. Uh, and he was ultimately medically retired from the Navy uh, within a year of the attack on the Liberty. So dad had sort of two back to back traumatic episodes. And so, but he didn't dwell on it. He didn't talk about it. In fact, when I was doing my research for this book and I was going to go over to Israel and spend a few weeks and, uh, do some archival stuff and do some interviews. Uh, he volunteered to go with me. I mean, he just didn't harbor that kind of re- personal resentment. And hmm. so, um, and so we, we went, in fact, my father met uh, one of the fighter pilots who led the attack on, on the Liberty. Uh, and in a really powerful moment, in fact, it was, the pilot was a guy by the name of Yifta Spector. And he's a pretty legendary Israeli pilot. He led the attack on Iraq's nuclear reactor in the 1980s. And so I reached out to him and uh, wanted to interview him. And he didn't want to be interviewed, but he had offered, he said, look, I don't, I'm too old. I don't want to be interviewed, but I'm happy to get together with you and have coffee when you're in Israel. And so when I got over there, I reached back out to him, said, I'm here. And I said, I'm going to take you up on that coffee. And so he invited me over to his house in the suburbs of Tel Aviv. So I went over to his house and, and he was, um, um, I told him, you know, I was there with my dad and all. And he asked me why I was interested in the story on Liberty. And I told him that my father had been on the ship. And, and he said, well, why didn't, and he knew my dad was an interest. So why didn't you bring your dad to this coffee? I said, well, you know, I, I thought that might be awkward. <laughs> yeah. He said, nonsense. He said, I insist on meeting your father. And so I called dad back at the hotel and I told him and dad jumped in a cab and came out. And, um, you know, here, all these years later, over 40 years later, you know, the pilot who led the attack on dad's ship and my father who had to patch that ship back up came face to face on this dusty sidewalk in the suburbs of Tel Aviv. And he had Spectre to his credit. He walked right up to my dad. He stuck his hand out and he said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And those were the words that like nobody in the Navy, nobody in the U S government, ever said to my dad or to any members of the crew for the way this all, all this played out. And yet it was, you know, one of the attackers that was the first to yeah. say that to my dad. And, and honestly, that was such a powerful moment for, for my father. Um, and you know, that, uh, that it was, a sort of a sense of closure. I think that he, that had never really come out of that experience. Do you uh, think you got to the truth in your book? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, I think the U.S. missed an opportunity to really press for a very clear explanation from the Israelis as to exactly what happened. Yeah, we kind of allowed them to sort of 
you know, say it was an accident. And if you look at how Israel's excuse sort of evolved over the time, how, you know, why the attack happened, it, it, it really, and then you also look at the, and, and one of the things I was doing research on my book, I got the internal Israeli communications out of their archives, you know, their, their message traffic between their embassy and the U S back to the Israel. And they were being, you know, they, they knew, I mean, their sources inside the U.S. government for feeding them inf- information were pretty incredible. I mean, they, uh, I mean, so they were they were learning that we had picked up on message on uh, communications during the attack, and they knew that what we they had an idea of what we knew. And so, I really, in looking at it, it, it seems that their explanation for what happened on the Liberty evolved. Their excuse sort of evolved as they tried to figure out how to meet the intelligence they thought we had on it. And so, um, but, you know, their ambassador to the U S um, was, was actually really one of the ones, I believe it was their ambassador that was really saying, Hey, if we're going to make this right, we've got to prosecute people for this. And we've got to invite American journalists to Israel to cover this trial. And that's the only way we're going to send a message to the Americans that, you know, uh, you know, that we're, that we're truly sorry about this. And, and, and Israel never went out on that road. You know, they never prosecuted any of those people. Uh, they never, nobody was ever punished. Uh, and, and that really sent a message to the American intelligence community as well that, Hey, you know, if this was such a bad accident, why didn't anybody go into jail? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you killed 34 Americans. You sent, you almost sank one over their ships and nobody gets punished. So, but, you know, the Americans really thought that um, the Israelis, you know, here they are fighting a pretty active war against multiple countries. And here's an American ship. And they really, the U.S.-Israeli relations weren't what they are today. You know, you have to remember this is 1967. This is just not long after the Suez Canal crisis, um, you know, which America had, you know, very publicly sort of chastised the Israelis during that time period. Um, Mm -hmm. The Israelis thought that the uh, U.S. State Department was way too pro-Arab. Uh, didn't trust the State Department. And, you know, here's an American ship eavesdropping and gathering all this intelligence while they're moving forces around between different fronts, things like that. I mean, could could they trust, truly trust the Americans to keep that intelligence secret? And so, but, uh, so that's kind of, it's kind of how, where the U.S. was left with that. But, you know, I interviewed, you know, folks inside the State Department Intelligence Bureau, National Security Agency, uh, uh, senior Navy folks. I mean, all of them to a T were convinced the Israelis knew exactly what they were doing. James, thank you so much for coming on to share yet another tale with us brilliantly, but also one that's got so much personal resonance for you as well. Well, thank you. It's always great to come on and and chat with you guys. You'll you'll do a great great show, great program. Well, thank you. I I can't wait to put this one out there and let everybody hear it because it's just brilliant Um, and something that I had absolutely no idea about. So thank you. Thank you. Join us tomorrow. We have medieval zombies for you. Paulina Ignatova will be with us to talk all about that. This was just brilliant. As soon as Alina and I saw her research speciality, that was it. We were gone. We were not going to take no for an answer. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack, and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year, and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up 
the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join us on either of those platforms, uh, Marcus is currently working on some benefits for you. So uh, there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.